Well, we're going to start a new series today called Into the New. And what I want to talk about today is into the new when the new looks like a trial. And there's plenty of us here uh, in this congregation and uh, across our country who have come out of COVID-19, out of the lockdown, into this, you know, the new normal everyone's talking about, right? And yet coming into the new normal, many, many people have found themselves coming into a time of real, real challenge, real difficulty. And we see this in Scripture. We see plenty of times where people get a breakthrough, people come into a new season, a new opportunity, and then find themselves smack dab up against a trial that they did not expect. I mean, you think of Israel coming out of Egypt, set free from Pharaoh, they've come out, and what happens? They find themselves facing right up against the Red Sea in front and, and Egypt, uh, Pharaoh's army hunting them down behind. I mean, talk about out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Or Joshua finally leads God's people across the Jordan into the promised land. Jericho falls in an incredible supernatural act. Then they go to take the city of Ai and they get beaten and they get beaten badly. Turns out there's sin in the camp. Who knew? And Joshua has this huge mess on his hands now that he's got to try and sort out. Or even the disciples on the day of Pentecost. I mean, They've been waiting in this upper room. The Spirit has been poured out, this incredible experience. They spill out onto the street, shouting the praises of God, speaking in tongues. And what happens? Immediately, they find themselves being mocked by the crowd and being accused of being drunk. Tests and trials come, right? Tests and trials come. In fact, someone said that you're either in a trial or you've just come out of a trial or you're just about to go into a trial. I mean, it's just, it's just life, and, and trials, can be, trials can be small. Some of them are just little problems you've got to solve, little challenges that you've got to overcome. James writes that actually God works in our trials for our good, for our growth, for our maturity. James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. For the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And that is, that is great. That's so encouraging. But who knows that not all trials are small, right? Some trials are big. And some trials are so big, they almost end us. Trials like having a severely disabled child. Trials like receiving a terminal diagnosis. Trials like going through abuse, or rape, or violent trauma. Trials like going through severe mental illness or like losing someone close to you. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that going on right now. We, we saw that police officer tragically murdered just this week. Man, people are grieving. Like losing a job or a career. Losing hope is a trial. And times can, like that can be tough, right? Particularly when you feel like you're doing it alone. And it's a common experience, isn't it, to go through a trial and then to go, where's God? Where's God for me in this? Where is the presence of God? So often people find themselves saying, why is God silent in my trial? Well, let me say today that silence does not mean absence. And I read a great quote this week, and this is what it said. It says, the teacher never says anything during the test. And God's word's clear, right? 
I mean, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. Matthew 28, verse 20. Uh, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. God is absolutely crystal clear repeatedly in Scripture. He is here. He is present. Since the cross, since the crucifixion and the resurrection, when the temple curtain was torn and from top to bottom, God initiating that, breaking down that which would keep us out from the presence of God. From that moment on, He is with us. He is with us in the good and in the bad. He is with us in the triumph as much as he is in the trial. And that's why I love that song we've just sung, right? There's another in the fire. This wonderful picture, this reference to this story in the book of Daniel about these three young Jewish men thrown into the furnace because they would not bow down. And yet in that place, finding the presence of God, finding God turning up and doing an extraordinary miracle. You see, trials can come in any area of your life. It might be the first day on a new job. Well, you've got to, you've got to turn up, you've got to front up, and you've got to, you've got to prove that you were worth the hire. I still remember the, my very first day on the job when we transferred up from Dunedin up here, and I was employed at Botany as a lead pastor there. I remember driving to work that very first day, literally on the edge of throwing up in my car the whole way. Some of you know what that's like. Maybe the trial for you is it's your first time unemployed. That's a big deal. I mean, not only have you got the financial stress, but there's all those things around identity. Who am I now? What, can, what does this mean for me? That's tough. Maybe it's a health trial. Anxiety, worry, depression, maybe a physical thing's going on with you. Maybe it's a, it's a trial to do with purpose where you find yourself saying, I, I'm not sure where I'm going anymore. I'm not sure what the point of this is anymore. Or maybe it's a trial in a relationship with your spouse or with your kid or with a friend or with an employee when, when you know, you're really struggling. I mean, like you're really in trouble. You're going, I don't know if we are going to get through this. And that, that was the kind of thing in some ways that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves in where they were handpicked, they were raised up, there was still something out in front of them and yet because they would not bow down to this king, they weren't sure if they were going to get through this. There will always be things that we have to go through in this fallen world. Because of sin, like at a fundamental level, we are just a little bit fractured, a little bit broken, and that means, therefore, that the systems that we put in place are a little bit fractured and a little bit broken, despite our best efforts. Romans 3 says, for all of sin, and fallen short of that incredible standard, that glory of God that we are destined for. But this is the great truth of the gospel. Despite our sin that separates us from God, that separates us from knowing Him, experiencing His plan for our life, despite that, the great truth is that because of Jesus, God is with us. And that changes everything. That means that there's another with us in whatever we are going through. But here's the challenge. The challenge is that while you are still relying on you, you won't rely on him. While you are still relying on you, you won't rely on him. Why do so many people find Jesus at their 
lowest point. It's not because he's not there for them at other times, but it's because sadly, desperation is often the only preparation for revelation. Desperation is often the only preparation for revelation. And and this place of being desperate for something, it's actually a powerful place to be in. You see, our point of of desperation, that's when the wall between between the supernatural and the natural, that's when that starts to get thin. It's when that dividing line between the unseen and and the seen starts to blur. It's in that state when we are desperate for God to do something. That is where God is able to step in to our trial, to our challenge, to our fire. When we're desperate for our kids, when we're desperate for our marriage, when we're desperate for our financial situation, when we're desperate for our health, that is the place that so often we find God and we find God is nearer and and more real than we think. I've been privileged over the years to go on a few missions trips and uh, in all of my photos from missions trips, there's always one special photo. And that photo is a selfie, usually taken in poor light because it's taken either late at night or early in the morning. And I am not smiling. Uh, That is my moment. That is my dark night of the soul. Because for some bizarre reason, I always find myself at that place where I don't know what I'm doing here. I feel completely unqualified for what God seems to be calling me to do, and I don't know what to do about it. And in every trip, I find myself somewhere at some point in a point of desperation, usually up late at night or in the early hours of the morning, walking around somewhere going, God, what are you doing? Why am I here? What is the point? I'm hopeless. I'm useless, God. And so I always take a photograph of myself at that moment to remind me of that moment because God always comes through at my point of desperation. I remember the very first time that happened, my very first photo like that, I was, we were in Tamangu Bible College. I was with Pastor Bob on a missions trip. We were, it's in the highlands of Java and in Indonesia. Uh, it's in a, in a very strong Muslim area. In fact, a, about five or six kilometers kind of down the road and off in the jungle is an Islamic Al Jazeera terrorist training camp. So we're in fairly hostile territory up there. And, and this Bible college is extraordinary. Like if you go into their office, they've got this, this big book and, and every, every page that opens up is a year group of graduates of young men and women have come in and, and gone through Bible college and have gone out to plant churches and start ministries. And as you look through that book, regularly you find a little red cross on some photos. And that little red cross is there because that person died or was martyred for the cause of Christ. And I tell you, you go to that place and you feel pretty inadequate. I know I did. But it it was in that place one night, I'm walking around the table, it's about one in the morning, I'm going, God, what am I doing here? I don't even know, I I can't keep up with Bob, I, I, I don't compare to any of these people, I've got nothing of any good. God, why am I here? And it was in that moment of desperation, I suddenly felt the presence of God. It was in that moment of feeling the presence of God that I then heard the whisper of God. And I felt God say to me, I brought you here to serve that man. I brought you here to serve Bob. That's all you have to do. It was like relief flooded my soul. It was like my confidence returned in the moment. I got up the next morning knowing exactly what I had to do. All I've got to do today is in some way ease his load. All I've got to do in some way is to help him in some small way today. That's what God has got me 
here for. That revelation only came because of the desperation. Uh, the presence of God was always there for me, but it wasn't until I got to that point that I was able to hear what God has for me. Can I say to you today, don't be afraid of a little desperation. Don't be afraid of getting to that place where you feel at the end of yourself. Don't be afraid of needing something from God. Let that drive you to press in. Let that drive you to get honest and to get real with Him. Because sometimes that's the very thing that prepares us for the greatest breakthroughs. He is with you in the fire. This, this amazing story, right, of Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego in the fire. Uh, I, love it, I love it so much. I love this this. This fact that God turns up for them in the fire and then they're unbound and they're unburned and, and, and the whole story changes at that point. And you know what's interesting? What's interesting is that the world is full of similar stories. The world is full of stories of Christians and non-Christians who at their point of desperation, often when their life is in jeopardy, they find a presence comes. And, and we shouldn't be surprised, right? Hebrews 1 tells us, that God's angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who are what? Inherit salvation. Like God's full-time staff are out there right now serving people who will be saved, being there for them, helping them through, trying to move them towards that place of faith. And in 1914, this is one of the first stories that came out. 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton was on an ill-fated attempt to go right across Antarctica. His ship Endurance got caught in early pack ice. They moved off the ship and all of his men, they camped on, the, on this ice floe for months and months until finally their ship was crushed, sorry, crushed and sank. They dragged their lifeboats for weeks and weeks and weeks till they got to the sea, set off on a 1,300-mile journey, just in open lifeboats in the Southern Ocean, which is the wildest ocean on the planet. They got their men to Elephant Island, this completely isolated island in the sub-Antarctic. He left all of his men there, and Shackleton took two others and one remaining lifeboat that was in Goodnick. And they sailed, tried to get to South Georgia Island, where they thought that there was possibly a manned whaling station. I mean, you want to talk desperation. But in Shackleton's account, written years later, he alludes to the fact that when they were trying to get over South Georgia Island, across unnamed islands, so remote, glaciers and blizzards. He said, someone turned up for them. This is what he wrote. He wrote, during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia Island, <clears throat> it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. There was another in the fire. And it's interesting because a guy called John Geiger wrote a book called The Third Man Factor, and, and he spoke about Shackleton's experience. But he also examined scores of other explorers, mountain climbers, soul around the world, sailors, shipwreck survivors who found themselves at the edge of death and had the exact same experience. A presence, was, a, someone was there encouraging them, helping them, providing direction for them. And that, and that someone then disappeared when they found themselves in a place that they could cope. Now, this is what was interesting. He wrote the book, published the book, and then was inundated with stories from around the world, from people like you and me, really ordinary people who had had the exact 
same experience. Some Christian, many not Christian. These were people that had a presence turn up that aided them in their trials when they faced crises ranging from physical and sexual assaults to automobile accidents, airplane crashes, critical illnesses, traumatic childbirths, and devastating depressions. So he wrote a a second book. Now he's a researcher. He's a historian. He's an investigator. He wrote a second book in which uh, he attempted to explore all the possible scientific explanations for this. Guess what he ended up titling the book? He called it The Angel Effect. In his very last statements at the conclusion of that book, he says, this is where I come to. This could be angels, or it could be some construction of our minds. But I think I know what it is. Then he went on to title the book, The Angel Effect. Stories are included in that book, like the story of Kevin Gillen, a New York firefighter, who on May the 16th, 2006, found himself uh, disoriented and lost in a five-story building that was completely ablaze when he'd gone and tried to rescue a man. He dragged this man out, and he made the mistake of giving the man his own breathing apparatus. And as the carbon monoxide and thick smoke, it was completely black, began to get to him, he said, I began to be disorientated. He got lost in the fire. And he, he writes that he had the thought, so this is how I die. And in that point of desperation, he says, I suddenly felt a presence and I heard a voice calling me by my name. Kevin, Kevin, it said. Even though he felt that the direction the voice was going on was taking him deeper into the fire, he said, I just, all doubt left me. I just knew I had to trust that presence. I see he dragged this guy around and through and through a bunch of doorways. And before he knew it, he found himself back in the main hallway just as a whole raft of firefighters arrived with him. With, with hoses and took him to safety. He said this. He said, I know it was the presence of God. And he said, here's the interesting thing. He said, no one knows him by his first name. He said, no one in his crew uses that name and no one used that name that day. He said, it was the presence of God. Or the story of a young 13-year-old body surfer by the name of Josh Robbins who, was, uh, who decided to go out for one more wave at Big Corona Beach in California after everyone else had left for the day. His friends had all gone. The surf lifesavers had gone. It was coming into evening, but I, he saw a great set coming in and thought, I just want to go out one more time. He swam out and found himself, frighteningly, in the biggest surf he had ever been in in his life. He was being absolutely smashed under the water, held down. And at the point of desperation where he said, I knew I was going to drown. He said, the strangest thing happens. He said, a man suddenly appeared right beside me, holding a flotation mat, seconds before a huge wave hit. And the man said this, you son look like you could use some help. Grab this. He said, he grabbed onto it just as the wave hit. He said, it was the strangest thing. He said, it was like he was gliding out in front of the wave. He said, the wave washed him all the way into shallow water. He rolled over and went to thank the man who had saved his life. But there was no man. There was no man in the water. There was no man either side of him. And there was no no man anywhere on the deserted beach. And there was no flotation mat. He said, I know it was an angel. And there are so many more stories I could tell like that. You see, God is near the desperate. And his promise is that he will be with us 
in the fire. Let's take a few moments and look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three young Jewish slaves who refused to bow down and worship the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, he threatened to burn them alive. Daniel 3, 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. They knew that God was able. They believed that God was willing, but they trusted that God had a plan no matter which way this played out. The king, furious, it says, ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It means to heat it hotter than it had ever been heated before, as hot as it could possibly be taken. These men, men were bound and thrown in. The fire was so hot that the men who threw them in died because of the intense heat. But then the unexpected happened. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Something happened in there that defied belief, and it all pivoted on one thing, that there was another in the fire with them. Someone who was there at their point of desperate need. Someone who looked like the Son of God. Let me quickly go through three things for us today in our trials when they come. Number one, God's presence is a reminder of God's promises. Now, this is important, right? I'm sure most of us here, all of us here, have at some point experienced, felt the presence of God, felt the nearness of God. God's presence reminds us of God's promises. I mean, you think of those three guys in the fire. Just the sense of God's overwhelming presence, the roar of the fire dropping to a whisper, no harm coming to them at all. I mean, these guys, these guys knew what the, what the blessings of God were. They knew what Moses had written. I, I wonder if those were the things that went through their heads as they stood there in that furnace. He will bless you. He will provide for you. He will protect you. He will bless and watch over you. He will, uh, his, sorry, his presence will go before you and behind you and beside you. He will bless your family and your children and their children and their children in the morning and in the evening, in the coming, in your coming and your going, in your weeping and your rejoicing. He is for you. He is for you. I wonder if those words rang through them in that place where they were suddenly confronted by the presence of God and what it meant for them. Peter writes in 2 Peter, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. May His presence, when you feel it, when you are aware that God is near, may that remind you of His promises for you. The second thought is this. 
God's presence is a reminder of God's power. This is, so, this is so impressive. You see, in the fire, I love this, in the fire, God disestablished the power of the fire. I mean, God is sovereign over the fire, right? He called it nothing, and it was. No burns, no hair singed, not even any smell of smoke on their garments. It's like when Jesus calmed the storm, right? He just disestablished the power of the storm. He, dis, he, dis, he dismissed the power of the wind and the waves. He is sovereign over the storm. God is sovereign over whatever trial or storm you are going through. And it's like we've got to remember that when God makes himself present, his power is present as well. You see, when God steps across, when God reaches down from the supernatural to the natural, from the unseen to the seen, it is an easy thing for him. See, for us, we we think it's hard for us to step up from the natural into the supernatural. But for God, when he comes this way, it is an easy thing for him. It is a simple thing for him. God's presence reminds us of his power in the present. And thirdly, God's presence is a reminder of God's priority. And what is God's priority? You are God's priority. He is with you in the fire. He is with you in the fire. It is for you he turned up there. It is for you he presenced himself. You see, God established his priority once for all time, for all people to see, by raising his priority high and pinning it to a cross for the world to see. And I'm not talking about Jesus. It was what was pinned to Jesus. It was what Jesus carried that is the priority of God, us and our sins. You know, Paul writes that we are found in Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, it says, He forgave us all our sins, nailing it to the cross. It was us Jesus carried. It was us that was lifted up with Jesus on the cross that we might always remember who is God's priority. And God's presence comes to what he prioritizes. When you experience his presence, be reminded that you are his priority. There is another in the fire with you. You see, God's not afraid of the fire. He will join you in your fire. He will bless you in the fire. He will protect you in the fire. And he will deliver you from the fire. You know what's really interesting? is that many commentators believe that actually it was only King Nebuchadnezzar who saw the fourth person in the fire. They say there's no indication in the text that Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego saw him. Obviously, they sensed his presence. They knew the presence of God was there. But it it says that they were walking around and that Nebuchadnezzar and only Nebuchadnezzar saw a fourth man in the fire looking like the Son of God. God's testimony to a king that God also loved and was trying to reach. Isn't it so like that in life sometimes, that sometimes others see with you or on you what you don't see? They see a strength in you that you don't see. They see a courage in you that you're not particularly aware of. They see God on you, even when you don't know God is on you even when you weren't aware 
that he was there. You see, he is with you and others see it, even if you don't. There's another in your fire. 